September 11, 2001 was a tragic day in America. The terrorist attacks caused the deaths of 2,996 people in New York, the Pentagon, and near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Thousands more were injured, and many people since then have died from illnesses caused by exposure to toxic materials at the World Trade Center crash site. Here on the podcast, each year in September, we dedicate an episode to hearing stories from people who were there and witnessed the tragedy. In this episode, you'll hear from Lori Brody, who worked in the World Trade Center, and from Joe Falco, a New York City firefighter. Their stories were told a few years ago here, and we're taking this opportunity to make sure their voices are heard again so that we never forget that day. If you or someone you know personally experienced the terrorist attacks at any of the three locations, please contact me through the website at whatwasthatlike.com. May we never forget. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this is this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes. And it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad and then on with today's episode. I'll confess, sometimes I let my podcast playlist get out of hand and I get way behind. But there's one show that I subscribe to and any new episode goes right to the top of the queue. That's the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's because I never have to figure out, okay, is this one going to be interesting or do I wait for the next one like I do for some shows? Because Jordan's conversations are always a must listen for me. He talks to fascinating people from any category you can think of. Authors, scientists, athletes, you name it. He's talked to undercover cops who posed as mafia and the actual career mafia hitmen. And the stories he gets out of these people, just incredible. In one episode, he talked to Paul Holes. You might know that name if you're into true crime. 
He's the former investigator who uses really advanced methods to solve cold cases, including the Golden State Killer. And another one I really enjoyed was with Sam Harris, an author and neuroscientist who promotes skepticism, and he doesn't mind taking on some seriously controversial topics like politics or religion. That one's going to make you think. Whenever a new episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show pops up, I already know it's going to be an episode that I'll enjoy listening to, and I'll bet you will too. For some episode recommendations, check out jordanharbinger.com start, or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Lori Brody. I guess everybody says everyone has a story, and this happens to be my story, as one of my friends told me. Um, 15 years ago, my brother and I got up. We went to work on a normal, bright and sunny day. Um, We got off the the subway at the Trade Center, and he went up to his tower, which was Tower 1, or people know as the North Tower. and. I went to mine, which is the Deutsche Bank building, which was connected to Tower 2. I can still remember what he was wearing. A nice pair of black Calvin Klein pants, a Kenneth Cole sweater with a little collar that's beige, a nice pair of nice Kenneth Cole tie shoes. That's how we dressed back in <laughs> And me and my suit and my sneakers, because my heels were in my drawer at work. Right when I got to my desk, all of a sudden, you heard these loud bangs and noises and um, alarms firing and everything went nuts. We were told just get away from the building. No one knew what was happening. Then we heard that a small commuter plane probably like a, hit the tower, but nobody was hurt. And that's all we knew at that point. Then we later found out, as we're back, we were back at our desk. I'm trying to reach my brother. My brother was Scott Schertzer, and I couldn't reach him. And then Tower 2 got hit. We were told to run as fast as we could out. We had to run to the other side of the building because our windows were breaking. And I couldn't reach anybody in my family. A nice man named Mark Lubin saved my life because he made sure I got out because I just went to a state of shock because I couldn't reach Scott. He made it to work on the 101st floor at Canner Fitzgerald. But, and that's the last that I got to really see him with that morning. Then it was just about running and more running and more running. And as the buildings collapse around you, you, you just ran and hid in alleys and you, you met in the nice, you, you hid in alleyways and doorways. People covered you up, which was, I, I always said there was no such thing as chivalry, but the men were covering up all the women so that they would get whatever, whatever was flying in the air hit them. It didn't hit us. They would just like, cuddle us and everything then you had to keep running some more through inches and inches of 
foot or whatever was coming out of the buildings. And you can imagine maybe what would have been coming out. And we finally got an office building all the way down by the water. Um, cause we ran that way, not nor We didn't run towards Midtown. We ran further away cause that's the only way we could run. And it took me until 1230 that day to even reach my parents. So my parents at that point didn't know if my brother or I made it. I was able to reach my dad after the first tower, but not after the second. And he knew that's the one that was attached to mine. So they were kind of a little bit more messed up than I guess when I was, because I was in shock more than anything else. But I almost knew he didn't make it. At that point, I was trying to figure out why did I survive and he didn't when I worked at Hamter a year before that. So what happened? Why would this happen as F-15s are flying over your head down Fifth Avenue? I mean, you know, you're not supposed to see them and they're lower than the buildings. Police are everywhere. No one knew what was going on. You just knew life wasn't going to be the same ever again. My life for sure wasn't the same ever again. My brother was 28 years old. He didn't actually have a life. And for me, it was just a lot of, after that, it was a lot of recovery, a lot of therapy. I guess in a good way, he failed suicide attempt. And finding out who you could rely on, what family, what friends. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't do anything. I was told I would walk around with a pillow and my brother and mine's picture on top of the pillow and wouldn't let anybody touch it. But, and I was told that by many people. And I remember parts of that, but a lot of things are blurry in my mind. And the pieces that I'm telling you are the pieces that I remember more vividly than the other pieces. I had PTSD. I'm still, uh, technically, I still have PTSD because I still get flashbacks. I had survivor guilt. I got my brother the job there. I got Scott the job at Cantor Fitzgerald. One of my friends hired him. And I told him he had to go to work that morning. The day before, he had laid off 50 people at Cantor Fitzgerald. He knew it was coming. He was having what I thought were nightmares and trauma as a result of it for um, about three or four weeks beforehand because he kept saying they're after me. The bad, the bad guys are coming. The dreams are happening. He couldn't figure out what's going on. All he kept telling everybody is how much he wanted to be with family and how much he loved them. And he kept telling my mom how much he loved them. And my mom, we knew something was wrong. We were arranging for him to talk to somebody. I mean, it's hard, 28 years old, having to lay off 50 people. That's traumatic. And we thought it was all that. And that night after he laid off the people, he said he still couldn't sleep. They were following him all over. And he didn't want to go to work because he said they kept following him. And I made him go to work. So I blamed myself a lot. Obviously. I know it's not me, but part of me will always think if I didn't get him the job, 
or if this, then I'm like, well, if the subway was five minutes late, like it usually is, we would have not have been there yet. But I don't, you can't, it, it's what happened. I don't remember, none of my memories are without him. I was two years and three months older, but I don't remember anything without him. And as we got older, somewhere along the line, we became friends. Our groups co-mingled when we got older. You know, we go out in Manhattan, we go down to LBI at the shore. We became friends. And so I lost one of my best friends. I see a lot of him in my kids. I sometimes joke I gave birth to my own, my own brother because my son has his sports abilities, significant abilities. My daughter has his blue eyes and blonde hair. And as you can see, I'm not blue-eyed or blonde. And we don't know where it is on my husband's side. And they can't remember how far back it has to be. Obviously, it's there someplace, but nobody knows where it is. I still see him in my dream. The hardest part is for me is when my kids ask why they can't meet their Uncle Scott or see their Uncle Scott. And I say that he's in heaven and they are like, well, where is heaven? Because to them, everything's a place on a map. And I have to try and explain it in a way that four and a half year old and two and a half year old could understand without telling them too much. So that's hard for me right now. I found ways to make sure people remember him. I fought my, the town I grew up in, North Edison, and I got our street named after him. I got a bench in Central Park named for him outside of Tavern on the Grain. We have a, a butterfly garden at our grammar school that was funded by neighbors. It's just ways that we can find ways to remember him. I've been to, obviously, to the towers since everything happened. For me, it doesn't look normal. It doesn't look right. And I don't know why anybody in their right mind would want to be in a building that tall ever again. But that's your choices. It wouldn't be mine. I couldn't take it. I have a special, I had a special pass, a special color that said I was a family member. I went with my husband. And security obviously knows what that pass color means. And they, they kind of stick around by you just in case. People start want to read your badge. And I went into the room where they went into the full details and I lost it. And they rushed me out to the family center and let me just sit um, where a security guard doesn't. There's a whole area where only family can go. And you could relive a rest. And they have like, I'm sound stupid, but they have water and like a little snack for you just so that you can gather your composure again. And you could stay there or you could continue. I stayed there. <laughs> it was hard. I've only been there once since being out here. I went to every memorial through the first 10, both the big trade center one and Cantor Fitzgerald has their own. I've met a lot of people through it, other siblings. And of course, you know, obviously, the politicians and anybody else that is a, somewhat of a VIP, whatever. But um, I've gone to all of them and it's hard. 
it's very hard to be down there. For me, it doesn't look like it should look. They're just rebuilding right on top of it. And for me, I wish they never did. We're one, I guess, lucky, for lack of a better word, that they found a part of my brother. I don't know what part my dad does, and it will die when he, with him when he passes. And hopefully that's not soon. He, my mom and I, he, he will not tell us what they found. We do know it's not that big. But he was found with, they told you where he was found and who he was found with. So he was found with his co-workers, which means at least they were all together. But I fought long and hard to get to a point where I'm a survivor. There's not much that can be done to me anymore that I can't survive. You learn your family is the most important thing in the world. In my house, we have well, we always say we love each other every day and we give each other hugs because you don't know when the last one's going to be. There, obviously, there are some details that I don't even remember, which is probably for the best. But I'm here. It took me a while to get off the meds they put me on. I needed them to go to sleep, to wake up and make it through the day. For about four years. But I'm here. And that's what I keep telling myself. And that's what's important. Probably up till now, most people out here didn't know about my brother, about Scott and what I went through. But yeah, there's a big divide. I think people don't remember it out here. I don't know if it's thought of as much. Back East, the major network will run every memorial with the names on the bottom. You're lucky if you see like a five-minute glimpse here as they're discussing traffic on the highway. It's not thought of the same. I, I just, I don't see it being the same. People don't. It's just like an ordinary day, and it's not. And if you were back east, it's not an ordinary day. They need to know that it's families. It's people who died. It's not just a building that came down and the lawsuits over the buildings and the rent that were afterwards. There's 3,000 people that passed away with four planes going down between New York, Sanksville, Pennsylvania, and D.C. Those are what you have to remember. Those 3,000 people didn't get to live their lives. They, had, they, they all have family members. They have brothers, sisters, moms, dads, kids. Some of those kids never even knew their parents. That's what people need to remember. But I think if you weren't personally impacted, it's just like another day to you. Okay, I'm just going to go on. You went to work the next day. I didn't go to work for a month and a half. And I know people will sit there and compare and say, well, we know we've lost loved ones, but you got to say goodbye. And that's what I keep telling people. I didn't get to say goodbye. We just went to work. We went to work in a business on Wall Street. We did not do anything that would have caused it. I lost faith. I mean, I know that I am Jewish. And that's why I go to the JCC and my kids go to the JCC. 
I'm not sure there's a God up there anymore. And even, I'm going to say, even Sister Elizabeth, because Catholic charities came to our house a lot. Sister Elizabeth was one, was a sister. She's like, you don't have to believe in there. If that's what you need to not believe in, you don't believe. I don't know if there is one up there. Because I can't imagine someone allowing this to happen. So it's really hard for me to reconcile that. I talk to my brother almost every day. He, I obviously, I'm, I talk to my family a lot. For my wedding, we set up a place setting for him. And we left the groom's spot open. Because that would have been his place. My son is named for my brother. Stephen is named for Scott. Um, my husband thought we'd be naming. I couldn't use the same name. It just was too hard for me. Um, I didn't want to look at my son's face and cry every five minutes. So I just reached out with the same initials. So yeah, every day I remember. I have, his, I have the flag that we got. It's in my house. But as I said, I guess unless you know me, you don't know this is my story. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. 
The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what, or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, Experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Joe Falco. We get a run in the morning around 8.30 to Penn Station for a, uh, an EMS call. So we go to Penn Station, and I'm waiting at the taxi ramp and where we always park, and the guys, the guys go uh, into Penn Station looking for the victim. All of a sudden, over the radio, I hear the chief from downtown calling up uh, Pfeiffer, saying he has a confirmed plane into the World Trade Center. So right away, I call the officer on the radio, and I tell him that we have a confirmed plane into the World Trade Center. So they, they came back, you know, within minutes. Ambulance showed up to take care of the pa- patient. They come right back to the rig. So they make it a second alarm automatically, and it's a third alarm, and we're on our way back to the firehouse, which is only a block away. We get to the firehouse, we back into the building, and now the guys are watching it on TV. Now it becomes a fifth alarm, and this is only minutes later. Uh, engine one goes. So now we get the ticket to go to the box. And now it's... Uh, I'm not sure the exact time, whatever, t- whatever time it was, a little before nine or nine o'clock exactly, we go and we get trans- transmitted to go. So the one guy, Kirk, he says, you want to drive or you want me to drive? So I was already driving. I was still in the rig. So I said, no, I'll drive because I was getting off that morning. I was supposed to go home, but I was waiting for a, a detail to come to the firehouse. So Kirk should have been driving that day. But uh, since I was already driving the night, he said, you, you know, I drove. So we get down to uh, the trade center. Everybody gets off the rig. And uh, I don't even remember the ride down there. All I know is I got there fast. I mean, it was, there was traffic, but we, we weaved in and out. And the cops had side roads blocked. And we got there so fast that it was uh, you know, pretty amazing how fast we got there. So we parked the rig. And um, <clears throat> I get as close as I can get, which is, you know, it was, a lot of rigs are in the way. Everybody gets off. I get off, I get dressed, I get my gear, and uh, 
I go in and see the, you know, now the guys are ahead of me, they're already in the building by the time I, I get there. So I, I, I catch up with the officer and the men in uh, Tower 2's lobby, Tower 1's lobby, I'm sorry. And uh, I tell him, he sees me, so he says, I don't want you in the building, he says to me. This is Lieutenant Desperito. He says, I, go outside and help somebody get water or get water yourself, meaning help somebody hook up to the building uh, and pump water into the building or if I can find a hand with my rig to do it myself. So I tell him, okay. So as I look out the door, uh, the windows of the uh, trade center, I see 65 engine. He's right in the middle of the highway and he's in the process of hooking up to a hydrant. So I make my way over to him. Now I have no recollection of anything in the lobby. I mean, they, they said that there were, you know, there was bodies around, it was debris everywhere. I don't remember any of that. I mean, uh, I was like, you know, whatever. I just didn't, I didn't focus on any of that. Well, I did know that there was, you could hear thump, crash and crash. That was just, you know, people jumping, hitting all over the place. So you had to watch when you, you couldn't just go out the door. You had to stop and wait till it was clear and then go. So I went across the street to, uh, the chauffeur and, uh, I knew him, but I didn't know his name. I, I we run in with him a lot, but I just didn't know his name. So we hook up to the hydrant. We, we charged the line and now we're looking at the building and it's a direct shot right across the street to where the connection on a standpipe is for the building. And, uh, it is impossible to hook up there. There's debris falling off the building. There's still people jumping off the building and it's right in our path for where we got to go. So I said to him, I said, we can't, we can't go over there and hook up. You know, we'll get, we, you know, we'll get killed going over there. Something falls. So we look, he looks around and he notices a hydrant right on the corner of Liberty and West Street. Just so we pack everything back on a rig and we take his rig. We drive it over around to now we're in front of the hotel on uh, Liberty and West. And we know he knows the rig in. We hook up to the hydrant. And we stretch a line down the sidewalk to that same standpipe. And he hooks up. He hooks up. I hook it up to the rig. And now the rig is pumping water. And uh, we're just sitting there watching what's going on. And uh, like I say, debris is constantly falling down. You have to watch because stuff is coming down. Uh, you have to watch every, every second. And to the side of us is a parking lot, pretty big parking lot, full of cars packed. And there's cars on fire from debris, I guess, when the plane hit. Stuff came down, and now these cars are on fire. And it's just right across the road from where we are. You know, just a road's width away from us. So we decide, well, let's try to, you know, we'll try to put these car fires out because we're going to be here all day. Well, we figured we'd be there all day, all night, and who knows when you'd get this fire out. Never in a million years I thought that the building was coming down. So we hook up a line to, we didn't even hook up to the rig. We went right to the hydrant because there was another hydrant right opposite of it. So we had one let the hose, hooked it up. And, uh, I was trying to put the van fire out, couldn't go, couldn't put it out just for some reason it wouldn't go out. And I, the whole time I'm looking up at the building on top of me, cause the, now this is tower two, the South tower and stuff is falling down, you know, light stuff, but it's falling everywhere, everything all around us. And, uh, so after a few minutes, I said, forget it. We'll just keep an eye on it. And if it gets really bad, you know, then we'll worry about it later. Cause we just, we're just too dangerous to be in that position when you're back to the building shut everything off. And now, uh, as we stop doing that, a uh, police officer comes to the door of the hotel lobby and he yells to us, let me know when it's clear to let people out. So I got in the middle of the street and, uh, the other fella is halfway between me and the uh, cop. And I'm looking, I can get a better view from where I was. So I'm telling, I tell the other guy, uh, clear, 
So the cop sends people out of the building, but it wasn't that many people, maybe 20 people. And a person comes out in a wheelchair, a person comes out in a stretcher, and then they bring these people over to the south pedestrian walkway. And there's a few ambulances parked under the walkway. And now these people are getting, whoever had to be taken care of is getting taken care of by those ambulances. So we did that. And now a few more EMS people come up. So we, we relinquished the uh, street to them. They, they were hand, they were taking care of the people. We said, let them evacuate. You know, they can direct the people out of the hotel. Going back to when I um, came out of the building and I hooked up with the chauffeur 65 engine. Um, there, the rig is right there, 65 engine. And as far as you could look to your left and as far as you could look to your right, there were nothing but uh, body parts. I mean, everywhere. And there was just, I mean, every, every, there wasn't, you know, hardly any space in between parts. I mean, it was just everywhere. And uh, before we decided I, not to hook up to that standpipe in front of the building, a, a, an engine pulls up right where the standpipe was. And we're, we're still thinking about what we're going to do. At that moment, as that rig pulls up, all of a sudden, a person lands on top of the rig. He had big thud. So that's when we said, we can't hook up over there. You know, we're, we're going to get hit. And that, that was our main deciding factor of not to hook up there when that, when that person fell on top of the rig, right in front of where we had to go. So we went back to the rig. And this is when this other fella shows up. The guy, Kevin Shea from 35 Truck. He comes out of nowhere. And he says, uh, you know, you want to try to put these fires out? So I said, well, we tried already. We couldn't do it. I said, you know, the three of us will try. So we uh, try to put them out. We sh stretched the line on the one side of the staircase of the pedestrian walkway on the, the north side. And we couldn't get a good shot at the, f at the van. So we wanted to come around to the back side and shoot between the two back windows of the van. Of the, of the van. So we bring the hose line on the north, on the south side of the walkway, right next to the staircase, behind the staircase, actually. And... Uh, the guy, Kevin, is on the nozzle. I'm backing him up on a hose. And the other guy, who I cannot think of his name, his, it's from 65 Engine, he's standing there, standing watch. So I'm constantly looking up at this building because stuff, like I say, is just falling everywhere. And uh, we were operating maybe five minutes. I don't, you know, with the hose line, I don't know it was much more than that. If it, if it was five minutes. I looked up one time and the building's just crumbling down, coming down. So I yelled to the two guys to run. Now, I, this time, I don't know that it's the whole building. I just think, you know, a large piece of debris is coming down. You know, I yelled to them to run. I turn and I'm running south up the West Side Avenue. Because it's not the highway, it's just West Side Avenue. So I'm running south. I didn't get very far. And um, the force of the air coming down with the building coming down. First I remember was my arms went out like Superman. My helmet went flying off. And once my helmet went off, I um, said, so I'm in trouble because now something's going to hit me in the head. And stuff is pounding me in the back. Like somebody's punching you in the back. It's just the, the, the dust and everything coming down. But it's coming down from a thousand feet up. So it's like somebody beating you. So now as it gets stronger, I go into a tumble. And I'm just tumbling head over heels, head over heels, rolling, rolling. And it's not black yet, but it's dark. And I get, and then I said to myself that I'm not dying like this. I know I said that. And, uh, I just get tumbled and I'm going sideways. And before I got dark, the last thing I remember, at least I think I remember, is I'm hitting the center divider on the highway and I get pushed up and over it onto the other. I could see it. I the last thing I saw was the weight of the divider. Got hit to it, rolled right up onto the other side and 
thrown onto the other end. And uh, as this is happening, why? I don't know, but I either I yelled it or I heard it. My daughter's name. That's the only thing I remember. You know, people say your life goes before your eyes. Well, one thing I heard was my daughter's name, Jessalyn. And now I don't know if I got knocked out. I don't know how much time passed, but I'm on the other side and I'm laying, laying flat on the ground. And uh, when I realize it, you know, I'm not even breathing anymore because it's, it's pitch black, as dark as dark could ever be. And uh, I think I was even, I think I've stopped breathing, just with holding my breath. And I'm laying there. You, you can't hear a sound. You can't see anything. I didn't feel any pain. I didn't feel anything. So I said to myself, well, I must be dead. And so I'm, I'm laying there. And uh, the first thing I thought of was uh, there's no light. You know, where's the light? Everybody says when you die, they, 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 you see this bright light. Well, there's no light. So I'm saying, <laughs> there's no light. Something's wrong. So then within seconds, all of a sudden, uh, you know, you, you, can, you can hear, you could feel stuff. And, and I could taste, you know, you're coughing up and you're, you're, you know now that you're not dead. You know, you're just, uh, you're sitting there hurt. And the whole time in my mind, I'm thinking that I got to be buried under rubble because it was like a freight train right on my back. The steel just crumbling and everything else happening so loud that I thought I had to definitely be buried. You know, you know, stuff had to be on top of me. So my first instinct was to reach up and out and I reached around and I didn't feel anything. So I, I felt better as well. If I am buried, at least I got room. I'm not, you know, in a tight spot. So now my knee, my back, uh, you know, my whole body is hurting, you know, hurting. I can feel a pain coming back. So, uh, I go to get up and I can't, I can't even stand up because of my leg. So I'm just laying there and dust is starting to settle. I, I have no idea what the time frame is, but I know dust has started to come down and in front of me, a few feet, maybe 10, 15 feet away, I see headlights uh, and then I can start to see the outline of an ambulance. And so now I still think I'm buried. So I'm saying, well, I feel much better. Now, there's an ambulance in here. You know, it must be a big void. You know, at least there's a radio in the ambulance, something I can get to, uh, to contact somebody. But I still can't move. And um, as time goes by, dust settles a little more. I look the other way and I can see another ambulance, maybe 25 feet away from me, facing the other direction. I can see the outline of it. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't make out what it was, but you can know, you knew it was an ambulance. So I'm sitting there and, uh, in the distance, which I believe, I don't even know, I, I think it was from the south coming at me, southwest uh, coming towards me. I see some guys coming with flashlights, firing, and uh, they're yelling, anybody here, anybody here? So I yell to them, they come over to me, and, uh, you know, you're right, you're right. I say, yeah, I'm, I'm good, I'm right. And uh, that made me feel a little uh, better too, knowing that there was other people around. So now they leave, and within a minute or less, I hear a guy yelling from in front of the van, the uh, ambulance, that he's trapped. You know, help me, help. So now, at this moment, I try to stand up. So I get up on the one leg, and I can't move. I can't walk from where I am to the ambulance because there's so much debris in the way. So I got as far as I could, and, uh, you know, I couldn't lift my leg up. So I, I get over to as far as I can, and then I just sat on the pile of debris, and I started yelling for help. So out of the distance... And in front of the van's on fire. There's a fire now. A guy, an EMS guy comes over with a fire extinguisher. And it's still, you can't breathe and you can't really see too well. So dusty. The guy's got a dry chemical extinguisher. And he's going to put the dry chemical on this fire. So I yelled to him, don't do that. I said, the guy can't breathe now. I said, the dry chemical, forget it. So he just pulled the debris away and you know, away from the ambulance. At the same time, 
the three or four firemen that passed me earlier came back and I told them that there's a guy according to the ambulance. I can't, you know, I, I can't get him. Luckily, the four of them, the one EMS guy and the, and the uh, fireman, were able to drag whatever was in front of the ambulance away. And the guy got up and he just walked away. I don't know where he went after that. You know, he just, he just walked into the, into the dust. Getting back to uh, the part when I was laying there in the, in the pitch black darkness after the tower had collapsed, I got thrown to the ground. A, a fellow from 7 Truck was also a, uh, a volunteer in Freeport with me. I've known him since he was a kid. His name was Richie Muldowney. And we had an ongoing thing um, for years in the, firehouse, in the fire department in the city. He was in 7 Truck on the east side, and I'm in one engine, which is on the west side, almost directly across. He's on 29th Street between 2nd and 3rd, and we're on 31st Street between uh, 6th and 7th. So directly, almost directly across. So in a lot of runs, a lot of boxes, we run in together. If it's in the middle, you know, we go to the east side, they come over to the west side sometimes. But a lot of times we run in together. So in, in order to uh, know if he was working or if I was working, we'd get on the, on the radio, on a handy talkie, and uh, we would just say, boy. And if he was working, he would say, hey, boy, back. Or if he, he called first, I would say, hey, boy, back. And it was just the way that we knew that each other were working that day, that night. So this was going on. This went back for years and years, uh, even before we were, he was in the fire department and myself. Uh, back when we were volleys in, in Freeport, uh, this whole boy thing started way back then. And it just continued on. Every time we saw each other, we called each other boy. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hey, this is Scott. Did you know we offer a premium feed of this show that is completely ad-free and there are bonus episodes? Go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus or just click the link in the show notes of any episode to learn more and to sign up. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can sign up right there in the app by clicking try free at the top of the episode list. And I hope to see you in the premium feed soon. So while I was laying in the, uh, the, you know, on the, on the ground before anything, I, I got any uh, sense of where I was or what have you, in, I hear the word, uh, hey boy. Now, that's, there's nothing I can hear or see, but I hear hey boy. Now, I had no idea that Richie's working that day. I, I don't even know that, you know, seven truck is there. I mean, I assume, but I didn't thought of it. You know, I didn't think of it that way. And uh, come out to find out later, you know, for us, that he uh, didn't make it that day. He was working. And, uh, you know, is there something I just thought in my mind or that I really, was he really talking to me that day? So I'm sitting there and I'm saying, you know, what am I going to do? I can't do anything. I can't walk. I can't. Uh... And then out of nowhere, I'm covered from head to toe with dust. And people, more people are coming around, coming around. And then out of nowhere, two guys from my firehouse show up. They were in the hotel lobby when the building came down. They had a whole company and they got out and somehow they walked all the way. They went around the way they came out and we just met eyes. 
and uh, it was um, Tyrone Johnson and uh, Jimmy Grillo from Lot of Twenty Four. So they come over to me, and uh, the three, the, the three of them, two of them, helped me get up, and uh, they said we got to get over by the water to get away from the building. All right, so uh, Jimmy's got a broken nose, his arm is a little messed up, so they helped they helped me get over over and away. So now, when you got a bad leg and somebody's dragging you or helping you walk, and they're pulling you too soon, too fast, and they're killing me. That you know, my leg is just hurt so bad that the, you know, I just forget it. Let me do it on my own. You know, I'll just take it easy. So now we walk, we're walking away, and just as we get in front of tower, the north tower, and it, now it's clear. Now, now you can get good visibility, and you can see that the other tower's already down. And so we just get in front of that, but we're in front of it, but on the other side of the highway far enough away from it and uh myself and tyrone we hear the the pancaking of the boom 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 we turn around and we see that building coming down so now i went from not being able to walk to running so the three of us start running out of the way again the dust cloud the air and everything starts the dust you know, starts pelting you we, we didn't fall down but it was enough to uh, knock you down and choke you and this time i was able to put my head in my coat to breathe so in the distance, like you see that there were stairs and then you went down to the water's edge and it was a brick, a concrete walk, uh, wall that went along the water, waterway. So I just started to walk. I said, you know, what's ever going to happen is going to happen. You know, I, I couldn't run anymore. So I'm just taking one step at a time and I found the staircase. It's only a couple of steps. I walked down the stairs. I get to the concrete wall. I knew I had to go north. So I turned to the north and I just started walking out until I came out of the dust cloud. So now I can see Jimmy, he's already out in the dust cloud pretty much. And he's, you know, near the edge, the water's edge. So I get, I almost get to him and I turn and there's a Tyrone's out behind me. And I'm just looking at, yeah, I didn't want to go back into it to, to go back to, you know, just didn't want to go back into it. I said, well, I can't leave him. I got to go back. So I take like two steps. And by the time I took two steps, because I, I wasn't moving too quick, I could see a shadow coming at me and uh thankfully it was tyrone he didn't see the stairs he fell down the stairs so by the time he got up and got himself together so the three of us walked north out of the uh, dust cloud and that is boats and everything taking people from new york to jersey and i i now once i get you know your adrenaline stops and everything else i couldn't i couldn't walk at all my, my leg was just i couldn't even take a baby step it was just so bad so they're telling me, well, get on a boat and I'll take you to Jersey to the hospital. Well, I didn't want to go to Jersey because, you know, I didn't know where the rest of my company was. You know, I didn't know where. I, we knew that the guy was in the truck were right because they were on the radio with them. But the engine guys, none of them, uh, engine one guys, none of them were answering the radios. So they convinced me finally to get on a boat. So I got on the boat and they brought me to Jersey, Jersey City Medical Center. They had a big triage area set up on the Jersey side. And uh, they wheel me off on a, on a uh, stretcher. They put me on a park bench. And then everybody left me. I'm there all by myself. Nobody, <laughs> it's nobody, you know, taking care of me. No nothing. Finally, a couple of people, a couple of guys come over. They take my blood pressure and everything out. And then they leave. And like, I'm just sitting there by myself. And a woman came by and she wanted to uh, know if there was anybody I wanted her to call for me. And I gave her my wife's number at work and... She finally, eventually, in the course of the day, she was able to get through to her to tell her that, that I was all right. And uh, so eventually they put me in an ambulance and they brought me to Georgia City Medical Center. 
and uh, they were mobbed. It was just mass confusion over there. They had so many people, they evacuated to Jersey uh, because they figured that New York would be overrun. Meanwhile, it was the other way around. Jersey was overran and New York had hardly anybody. So I went to, so they checked me out uh, and he did took x-rays, you know, stitched up my leg where it was torn open. And then they put us in a uh, a room, just cops, firemen, and EMS people. Separate, you know, no windows, so we couldn't see anything. So we're sitting all up there, you know, I'm covered from head to toe, I'm filthy. And they were letting, eventually they were letting guys go take showers, get cleaned up. And everybody kept asking me if I wanted to go take a shower. And I, I just didn't feel like doing anything at the time. I just wanted to sit there. And I kept saying, no, no, I'm all right, I'm all right. So I'm watching these other fellas taking showers. You know, they were dirty, but, you know, there was nothing really... That bed, some of them. And uh, finally, I go and take a shower. I'm talking about hours later, I finally go. So I walk past the mirror in the bathroom, and I'm, you know, so much dust on my hair and my face, you know, black, slip all over me. And I said, oh, I guess that's what they wanted me to take a shower. I'm so, I'm so, I'm so dirty. So I just had stitches in my leg, and they say, you know, you're not supposed to get stitches wet. Well, how are you going to take a shower if you don't get your stitches wet? So I used a bottle of shampoo and a bar of salt, finally got most of the dirt off of me and uh, came back. They rebandaged my leg and uh, that got infected after, you know, after a few days. And then uh, I asked the nurse, well, not even the nurse, one of the caseworkers there. There was a bunch of women that, you know, getting us whatever we needed, you know, and they were very nice. I asked her, I said, you know, is there any way we can get, we can uh, find out who's in the hospital? You know, other guys from our company so we know, you know, if they're here or not. So she said, well, she would go downstairs and make a list. They had a bunch of blackboards in the triage area and they had your name and your, your medical condition on it. And it would, so she goes, I'll go find out. So she comes back with a bunch of papers and there's um, names all over it. So some are firemen, some are civilians, some are cops. It could be anybody. So finally, I see a name of my lieutenant who's on it. Uh, actually, that lieutenant was working in a truck that day. He's, he's lieutenant engine one, but he was working in a 24 truck as a lieutenant. So I see uh, Blake McLaughlin. So I asked the nurse, I said, does this mean that they're here and fine? Or does this just mean that they've been brought here and you know, they could be deceased? And she didn't know. She said, I don't know. They're just on the board. Sorry. Like five minutes later, 10 minutes later, here comes Blake walking into the, uh, into the room, which I was glad to see because now I had somebody with me. A few minutes later, you know, I'm like, I was pretty shaken up, you know. And uh, I, when Blake got there, I said, you know, I wish... I could talk to Father Mike, Father Michael Judge, because he was uh, the priest in a uh, church across the street from us, St. Vincent's, um, St. Francis of Assisi, and he's also the fire department chaplain. And he was, you know, really good guy, and we all knew him in the firehouse very well. So I didn't know it at the time. So he tells me, he says, oh, you don't know? I said, what? He said, the Father Mike didn't make it. And that, you know, really took me for a loop. Finally, they brought us back to New York in a, uh, in a bus that they got from, uh, New Jersey, and they, they dropped us off at different firehouses, and then we had to get a ride back to our firehouse. And then uh, a few friends of mine, Bill Shimari and uh, Rick Holder, they drove in, and uh, about, I'm not even sure what time it was, 10 o'clock at night or something like that, maybe, maybe a little earlier. And they were able to get into the city, and then they drove me home because I couldn't drive. Injuries were, uh, well, that was another thing when I was in the hospital. They, their big thing was, they said, well, did you black out? I said, I don't know. How would I know if I blacked out? I, so I think I, if I would have stayed in New York, I would have got better care. I don't really think I got too good a care over in uh, Jersey.
I think I would definitely should have stayed tonight. I mean, they sent me home, uh, you know, with like, you know, with like getting hit by a car with, you know, uh, the injuries, you know, I got, you know, they didn't know, really know if I had any kind of internal injuries or anything. They, you know, they were so overwhelmed. They can't really blame them. They just had, you know, limited uh, staff and so many people to take care of. So, but I just think if I was in New York, uh, St. Vincent's or one of the other big hospitals that I, I would have entered my, uh, my betterment. Because the next day when I woke up, I had first that day, I had a big lump on the one side of my head on the, uh, on the right side. And, uh, the next day I had about a hundred lumps on my head from getting hit in the head. So, uh, I'm sure I should have stayed overnight for observation at least. And so, uh, my injuries were, I had, I was basically hurt from head to toe. Every point of my body was injured. Uh, my big injuries were my, uh, shoulder, my left shoulder, which is, I need a shoulder replacement. The doctor says there's nothing they can do for it. The joint is, uh, messed up. And, and my left knee, uh, was the one that I had, uh, uh, casted, I had it operated on. I had, uh, the whole knee was torn apart, ACL, the PCL, cartilage, full cartilage damage. The, um, I had a broken, uh, a crack in the tibia. Uh, I got a crushed bone in the, in the, uh, tibia, the top of the tibia. Uh, my right side, they got torn ACL. I have torn meniscus and, uh, I had the left side was repaired. They repaired the ACL and the PCL. Uh, <clears throat> while I was in the cast for the month that, uh, went back uh, the bone was split and the bone, uh, healed itself. And uh, so that was all right. Um, uh, the medial meniscus, not the medial meniscus, the, uh, medial collateral ligament, they thought they would have to reattach that, thought it was stretched, but while being in a cast for a month, uh, that shrank back on its own. So that was all right. So, uh, I had that operation, the ACL reconstruction and, uh, it's over with, but I'm in constant pain every day. It's, um, just something you have to live with, you know, doctors need knee replacement. And until I do that, I'm just in pain, uh, you know, 24 seven. I just have to watch what I do. You know, if I got to kneel down, you got to think about it before you just go actually do it. You know, you just can't just kneel down. You got to, you know, oh, which knee am I going to kneel with? My left one or my right one? And then I went in for an operation on my right knee. And, uh, the doctor said that he, he wouldn't do it. And he said, uh, he wouldn't replace the ACL just because you have too much damage to that knee. And replacing the ACL will just make the knee tighter and you'll be in more pain. He says, you need two knee replacements. And so I need two knee replacements and a shoulder replacement. Uh, but he recommended, he, he didn't advise, he advised me to hold off on uh, everything to, you know, you're too young to do it right now. And he advised about the shoulder replacement to really hold off on that because uh, once you get a shoulder replacement, you're really limited to what you can do. And my son doesn't show it much uh, now. I think, you know, I don't know if it doesn't affect them or he's just uh, able to hide it more. And uh, my daughter seems like it really, uh, it really affected her. She was, at the time, she was 11. Or was she 10? I have a problem with her age. I always forget her age. And uh, she had a problem with it. She still has a problem. Whenever I go into the city, you know, different uh, functions, I go back to the firehouse for, or whatever, she had a problem with me uh, going back into the city. And, uh, yeah, she took it hard. I'm sure both of them did. And also my wife, you know, the coming so close to, uh, losing me. And again, the other wives in the firehouse, different functions. And, uh, you know, you see them and then, uh, it all takes a toll on them, even though, uh, I'm still here, but, uh, it still bothers them.
in the beginning, I, um, I had, I wouldn't, I don't know if there were nightmares so much where, you know, nightmare would scare you. These were just a lot of dreams. I mean, uh, and it was a lot of, basically it was one dream that I had over and over that I was in a staircase and the staircase, they weren't the way the staircases are in the, in the trade center. They were like a long, a long, uh, hallway and then the stair, another stair going up. It wasn't, you know, a really long hallway. So I'm standing on the landing in the uh, staircase and the whole building is collapsing in front of me and, you know, coming down like a, a shoot almost, almost everything, just the staircase is just collapsing one on top of the other. And then you just see, uh, you know, civilians and firemen just going past you as everything's collapsing. But I'm standing there on an area that's fine. I had that dream quite a few times. And then, uh, you know, just constantly on your mind, every, you know, every day, you know, you're always, um, one way or another, you, you wake up thinking about it or you go to sleep thinking about it or, you know, you do both. And, uh, it still happens to this day that, uh, you know, something will happen and, uh, it's basically on your mind 24 seven, you know, not to the point where you can't function, but, uh, it is, uh, you know, you're always thinking about it, about the guys, you know, so many guys that, that were lost that day and so many of them that you knew, uh, you know, uh, you know, a lot of times, oh yeah, I know that guy. Yeah, you don't. You know, there was a lot of guys that you knew by face, by name that you actually had. You know, you talked to uh, guys from my firehouse. You know, we had four guys from my firehouse alone that were you know, good friends. Um, it was um, Captain Bruffle of Ladder Twenty Four, uh, Steve Belson from Twenty Four Truck, who was working as an aide that day for Oil Palmer, and uh, actually Captain Bruffle drove for the Michael Judge down there that day to the scene. He was, he got off that morning and then, uh, Mike Weinberg from engine one who, uh, came from home. Of course, his sister worked in the trade center. So he went down there to see what, you know, make sure she was right. He ended up uh, with captain Bruffle. They were found together when, uh, after the aftermath. And then the other guy was, uh, Lieutenant Desperito, Andy Desperito from engine one. Uh, all the guys from engine one made it out and he didn't, he was, uh, with a uh, fellow from the port authority. Uh, he was right behind everybody, and uh, he was also uh, involved with, uh, I believe, the, the guys from Ladder 6 who were trying to help that woman out, um, uh, Josephine. He was one of the guys, because they, well, so they were all together at one time on a staircase uh, helping her down, and then they got split up. And uh, the fella that he was with from the Port Authority is fine, and he was right next to him, and um, you know, he didn't make it. So... Uh, they say those kind of things, you always, you know, you'll always remember those things. You can get a full transcript of this episode at whatwasthatlike.com slash 149. And I want to extend this invitation. We hear stories from 9-11 survivors in a special episode every September. So if you have a personal story of survival on that day, please contact me through the website. And now, some happy news. I have an update on our food service worker project. As a quick reminder, I set up a little project where we would all chip in a few dollars, and I would then give that as a gift to a food service worker. This is all set up through a GoFundMe, and I've turned off the donations now. We got that dollar amount up to $542, thanks to a bunch of generous podcast listeners. I'm planning on giving that money to someone sometime during September, 
and I'd really like to get that on video. So I'm working on that, and of course when it happens, I'll let you know. And the first ones to know will be the roughly 5,000 people who are in the podcast Facebook group. If you're not in there yet, get over to whatwasthatlike.com slash Facebook. In fact, for the next 100 people that come into that group, I'll waive the $25 annual fee, so you'll get in completely free. Just kidding. It's always free. And now, I got this voicemail from John, who was listening to the episode called Jaina's Hotel Was a Crime Scene, and he had some observations about how it was handled. Hey, Scott. My name's John. I'm calling from the U.S., and I'm just absolutely cracking up here listening to Jaina's story about her wedding and the gunman at the hotel. What a firecracker she is. But what I'm cracking up the most about is the fact that a gunman who they knew they had contained to one floor in a hotel shut down an entire city for eight blocks, and he had a handgun. (laughs) Now, I haven't listened to the end of it yet to find out if he had a bomb strapped to him, but you would think he had a nuclear weapon attached to him with with how uh, overreacted they, uh, or how much they overreacted shutting down the city. So anyway can't stop laughing here thinking about it. The police in the U.S. would have shut down the floor above him, the floor below him, and the floor he was on, and it would have been over in about a half an hour. So, um, different worlds, I guess. Love the show. Jaina and I have stayed in touch, and we were recently messaging online, and I had her listen to that voicemail from John. She was cracking up about the firecracker comment, and she also had this to say. Thank you for sharing that voice message with me, Scott. You just cracked me up because my American friend is not wrong. It's so different in Canada versus the United States. And my friends and I often joke about how different it would have been if what happened to me happened in the United States. It probably would have lasted like 15 minutes. Um, it almost felt like they cared more about the well-being of the guy with the gun than everybody else in the hotel. Like, are you okay? Did your mom love you? Do you need counseling? How about a glass of water? Meanwhile, we're all hungry up on the ninth floor. <laughs> I was actually just just in Atlanta only two months ago and there was an active shooter just a block away from me. Yes, I know it sounds like craziness follows me wherever I go. But the city was just business as usual. Some of the businesses chose to lock their doors, but everyone else was just going around doing, going about their usual business while the guy was actively shooting up a hospital and running around the streets. Um, But yeah, we're just not used to seeing guns in Canada at all. So I do appreciate the extra precautions though. I'm glad it's better to be safe than sorry, but in Canada, we're Extra, extra, extra safe. (laughs) You know, just hearing Jaina's voice makes me want to go back and listen to that episode again. She's so much fun. Hoping to meet her in person at a podcasting conference sometime in 2024. Recently, I asked if you would go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave me a five-star rating. And I appreciate that. Some people also took the time to write a review. And one of them was JojoBeaner01, who wrote, I look forward to WWTL every two weeks. Scott is compassionate, and the stories are all different and interesting. Highly recommend. So thank you for that. And if you would like to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you might just hear yours in an upcoming episode. Graphics for this episode were created by Bob Bretz. Full episode transcription was created by James Lye. And now, this week's listener story. Every episode ends with a story like this, sent in by a listener. And I'm sure that you have a story that's interesting that you can tell in about 5 to 10 minutes. 
So get busy and record it on your phone, then send it to me at scott at whatwasthatlike.com. This week's story is about a young girl and her horse. Stay safe, and I'll see you back here in two weeks. My name is Chloe. I'm a longtime listener. I love your show, love your content, love everyone who contributes their stories. It's been such a blast listening as the years have gone on. So thank you for everything you do. I thought I might share a little bit about something that happened to me when I was in middle school. In middle school and high school, I was growing up in the suburbs of Seattle, specifically Woodenville. It's now a very touristy kind of wine town, but at the time it was very like semi-rural, just lots of horses, lots of open space. And so, yeah, I, I grew up riding horses competitively. I loved it. I was very socially awkward, was not very athletically inclined. And so riding horses just really scratched that itch for me. It made me feel like I could work towards things, accomplish things. I had great coaches. It was just a win-win-win. I wasn't able to own a horse at the time, so I just kind of semi-leased a couple for different show seasons. The one this particular year I was leasing was named Colette. She was a part quarter horse, part thoroughbred. She's about 15 years old, I want to say, and she was just lovely. We really vibed. So we went into this particular show season. Um, I did hunter jumping, so that meant we would do several different courses and we would get scored on a point basis for each course. There were three in an event. And then at the end, all those points would be calculated to figure out sort of who got grand champion, reserve champion, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, blah, 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 blah. And so we had been doing super well this particular day before my eighth grade year. Uh, I was so excited. I was having so much fun. And we go into this third course. You're basically given the course a couple minutes before you're supposed to go on. You have to look at the chart. Then you look at the actual way the jumps are configured, you know, uh, on the ground. And you have to sort of eyeball it and figure out your strides and your plan of attack, essentially. So I did that and I talked it over with my coach and I thought it through and I said, yeah, you know what? I know what I'm going to do. So we went in, we did our little opening circle like you're supposed to do, where you sort of uh, show off, and then we got into the course, and we were doing great until this two-jump sequence where I miscalculated the number of strides that should have been between the first jump and the second jump. I thought that it was only going to take a landing stride, a uh, in between stride, I guess, and then a takeoff stride. But really, there should have been another one in between there. And so I knew it once we were in the middle of those jumps. My horse, Colette, knew it, but she was still listening to me, and I couldn't back out because I had already cued her. And so we were just like, well, let's hope this works. So she took this enormous jump. She had to throw her head back a lot further than she normally would have if it had been a normal jump. And so when she threw her head back further, 
she hit me in the face because of the way I was positioning my body to go over the jump. And so I fell sideways off of her. We're taught to sort of unhook our legs from the stirrups so that we don't break our ankles if we're falling. So I did that. And I just fell off to the left side of her. As she kept going over the jump, I fell on top of the jump and all my wind got knocked out of me. Instantly, my first thought was I was just pissed because if you fall, you're disqualified. And I thought that we could have cleaned up the whole thing. We were doing so well. My second thought was that I was worried about her because she's just running around. Horses have very strong emotions. So she came kind of trotting up to me with her head hanging low, thinking she had done something wrong when really it was me. And so I collected her. I was trying to kind of comfort her. I was gimping off of this course. Everyone sort of pity clapping me. I was just pissed because, you know, this was the last show of the season, the last day of the events, and I had blown it. And I was sore and it just sucked, you know. And so then I got home. My family's sort of Sunday night tradition was to all pile into my parents' room and watch Survivor with ice cream. So we were doing that. There was a commercial break. I tried to get up to use the restroom and I could not move. So it turns out I fractured two of my vertebrae, slipped two of my discs, and I had to wear a back brace for the most socially awkward year of my life in eighth grade. On top of that, I had some kind of allergic reaction between the pain medicine and another medicine I had already been taking that caused my top lip to blow up like Kardashians gone wrong and caused me to break out in hives. And so that also (laughs) happened to be on the day of our first eighth grade dance And so I sat in an oatmeal bath the entire day with an ice pack on my lip, taking Benadryl, just loopy beyond belief. And my mother, bless her heart, did everything in her power to get me into my corduroy Hollister skirt and iridescent star printed t-shirt so that I could go to this dance. (laughs) And I made it. But that was a rough year of physical therapy and a back brace and not being able to have that athletic outlet that I had loved for so long. Finally, I was able to get back up on the uh, not only the proverbial, but the literal horse the following uh, spring, a little bit less than a year after my accident. But that was... (laughs) very tough time. Uh, Zero out of 10, do not recommend breaking your spine when you are 13 years old.